and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people just like you working to understand viruses and how they affect you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we are talking with doctors and scientists involved in coronavirus and COVID-19 related research so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On April 8, 2021, we talked with Dr. Jeannie Kelly, an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, an obstetrician gynecologist trained in maternal fetal medicine and clinical investigation. She received her MD degree from Columbia University and completed both residency and fellowship at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. During her fellowship, she also completed an MS in clinical investigation at Tufts University. She currently serves as the medical director of the obstetric inpatient service line and the maternal transport service of Barnes Jewish Hospital. Additionally, she established and serves as the director of the Clinic for Acceptance, Recovery and Empowerment or CARE in pregnancy. Her research interests primarily focus on opioid use disorder during pregnancy, but recently also include exploring the effects of COVID-19. Hi, Jeannie. I'm happy to have you with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in medicine? Yeah, so I'm Jeannie Kelly. I'm currently one of the maternal fetal medicine physicians here at Washington University. I grew up the kid of two PhDs and in a small college town where everybody's parents were PhDs. And so I really thought that's what you just kind of did when you grew up, you know, you went to college and then you went to grad school and got a PhD and became an academic. Um, And so I was pretty, you know, bopping along this path uh, in college and started working in a biochemistry lab, uh, thinking that I would, you know, pursue my PhD in biochem. And the PI of the lab, took me aside one day and um, I don't know if this is actually like good or bad, but he told me, you know, I think you can pursue lab science if you want, but I think you really should come with me. I'm going to be on service in the hospital. He was an MD PhD. And I want to see what you think about clinical medicine, because I think you should really consider medical school. So uh, I think I was like a bad bench researcher or something, Um, but he took me along. He was a a pediatric uh, oncologist. And so it was uh, in the children's hospital with a lot of kids with cancer. And that was really my first experience in the hospital as uh, not a patient, you know, uh, going to my well child visits as a kid. And that kind of really opened my eyes. I suddenly kind of put into context, oh, so like, what we're doing in the lab, like this is where you're trying to use it. Uh, And this is the clinical benefit of all these PCRs that I've been running for the last two years. And that kind of really clicked for me uh, at that point. And I think we kind of had some soul searching and um, uh, changed my path, applied to medical school and uh, here I am. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about how you got to the various steps that you went through? So sort of your undergrad research, um, medical school and beyond, how did you choose the places that you ended up? You know, how did you choose say um, the schools or the different um, programs? How did that happen? So I was probably always kind of drawn towards academics um, just by nature of who my parents are. Uh, You know, I kind of lived 
ate and breathed, uh, you know, publish or perish. I watched them go through tenure. I watched them go through all of those uh, kind of big milestones during my childhood. And so I was like, oh God, I got to do some research. Um, so, you know, in, in college, I got involved in this biochem lab. Uh, and then I didn't really, I wouldn't say that I had like a direction in research um, until really, honestly, quite recently. And so for the majority of my career and my training, research was really just to check that kind of tick box. You know, you are in medical school. If you want to go to a good residency, you better have some research uh, experience. So in medical school, I um, thought I wanted to do surgery. I did some research with a surgeon. We did these like laparotomies on mice um, and, uh, you know, did some blood draws. It was technically very cool. Um, but I wouldn't say that was, you know, necessarily, I found passion in my, in my research work at that time. Um, and then, uh, so I went to medical school at Columbia in New York City. And then um, for residency, um, I was an OBGYN resident at Tufts Medical Center, uh, where again, research was really kind of this tick box. Um, you gotta do research if you wanna go into fellowship, which I did for maternal fetal medicine. And it, in, in fellowship, um, my program director told me, you know, you have a significant amount of research experience, um, but you only have an MD. And I think if you wanted to open up research as a serious part of your future career, you need to think about um, learning about it in more of a systematic, formal way. You should get this master's in uh, clinical research and translational science. And again, that was me kind of seeing the next carrot uh, as the like, you know, next benchmark of what I needed to do in my career. I got a master's in um, clinical science and translational sciences, clinical research and translational sciences. And it really wasn't until I graduated um, fellowship and came here for my first attending job. I was hired as a clinician in 2016 in the maternal fetal medicine division that it all kind of came together. And what I mean by that was, uh, you know, you kind of always ask, like, what do you want to do with your life? How do you foresee your future career? And everyone had this like cool answer, right? You know, I'm going to be a, a researcher in women's health for the health disparities. You know, this like these very thought out plans. Whereas I felt like I kind of was just kind of bopping along. I didn't really have a niche or a something that made me think, oh, this is my area of expertise. Other, you know, I was like, I just decided to go into maternal fetal medicine. Like I just made that decision. I have to make more decisions. Um, but I got here and one of the things clinically that we realized was really missing here um, was a clinic to take care of patients with opioid use disorder. And coming from training at Tufts in Boston, opioid use disorder was rampant. Um, knowledge of it was rampant and treatment of it was thankfully also pretty rampant. And it was one of those um, kind of bread and butter things that you did as a high-risk obstetrician, you treated patients with opioid use disorder. We had nothing here. And I think I came right around the time that opioid use disorder was really rearing its head here in Missouri. And we're all suddenly realizing, oh my gosh, this is a real problem. And so it was a, you know, luck and kind of happenstance that I fell into doing clinical uh, opioid work with pregnant patients here, um, started a clinic. And then by way just of that, 
realized there is like very limited research and very limited guidance on how to treat women best and optimally with opioid use disorder and kind of naturally fell into applying for some specific grants and um, doing the research that's needed in that clinical setting. So that's kind of where my main clinical and research focus is. So fast forward a couple years um, and, you know, like I'm junior faculty, um, my bosses are like, you're doing a great job. We have this amazing opportunity. It's called the medical directorship of labor and delivery. We think you would be great at this job. And I'm like, that sounds really important. And I'm so flattered that you would think that I would do a great job. Absolutely. Sign me up. So that was January of 2020, where I accepted the role of the labor and delivery medical directorship. And I had these visions, I had these thoughts, you know, these are the areas that I really wanted to improve on labor. And of course, as we all know, this little virus called, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 came and showed up um, here in St. Louis uh, just a few months later. And um, that was completely overwhelming, um, I think, to someone who had just stepped into that role, was literally still learning names of the leadership at the hospital um, and trying to figure out how the administrative side of labor and delivery worked at that time. But suddenly we were, um, you know, knee deep in algorithms and we didn't know anything about the virus at that time. We didn't know how it really was transmitted. We were, you know, stripping naked in our garages before we went home, we were washing our fruit with bleach. You know, uh, we didn't really know anything. And um, one of the quirks of our labor and delivery is that we are in a positive pressure building. And what that means is that all of the airflow is designed to basically be pushed out of the rooms. So that's great to, you know, when you're like doing a C-section, like all that air is being pushed out of the room. So it's away from the patient and you theoretically decrease your infection rates. But as you can imagine, that's awful um, for if that patient themselves have something like COVID and you're like, oh, um, maybe all the air is being pushed out of their room and being dumped into the room next door, which happens to be the bone marrow transplant unit. Um, and so it was... I mean, it was, it was a challenge, let's say, <laughs> to put it at the very least, to kind of come up with these complicated algorithms as we were learning, how do we control COVID? How do we prevent transmission? Um, in the beginning, we were trying to figure out how to keep all pregnant women out of um, Parkview Tower, which is where our labor and delivery is. And as it turns out, it's really hard to take care of a pregnant woman not on labor and delivery um, <laughs> in other units that are not designed to take care of pregnant women, especially when they also have COVID on top of it. You know, we also discovered during this whole time, there was a lot of, you know, my husband's an orthopedic surgeon. His entire service got shut down because many of what they, much of what they do is elective and or not super time sensitive. Um, lots of other services got shut down, but labor and delivery was rocking and rolling um, with really no change. If anything, there was an increase in the number kind of, you know, on trend uh, for our unit in general. And we suddenly realized what a huge sort of exposure risk 
obstetrics is for an infectious disease. And not only is that unit completely open, like anyone can just walk onto that unit off the street if they happen to be pregnant um, and need medical care, Obstetrics is a team sport, you know, for a delivery, there's probably sometimes 40 to 50 people in a room um, from uh, the obstetrics side, from the nursing team, from the anesthesiology team, from the neonatology team, you know, huge groups um, are involved in someone's delivery because there's lots of things that and lots of jobs that need to get done during it. And if a transmission occurred during one of those events, we realize how catastrophic that could be um, for the team, but also for the rest of the hospital. And we realized it was really important to kind of systematically and formally capture how COVID was affecting our patients. Um, pregnancy is in many other infectious diseases causes uh, modulates the, the disease course because of how the immune system is modulated during uh, pregnancy. And we nobody knew anything. <laughs> this was a completely new kind of infection. We had no idea, you know, we could kind of extrapolate from other respiratory diseases like the flu. We could extrapolate from other really scary coronaviruses like SARS and MERS, um, but we really didn't know what this particular coronavirus uh, did in pregnancy. And we were kind of the center that was holding a ton of that data. And so we thought we absolutely have to study this. Um, nobody else knows anything. We're all kind of flying blind here. And there was, um, you know, some chatter, uh, kind of these like early reports that um, there was really high COVID rates, asymptomatic COVID rates on labor and deliveries. And that was something that we started tracking pretty early on in our unit. Um, we noticed a really high rate. Um, and when I say really high, I mean like five to 8%. I don't want everyone to think that we're like a, a labor unit full of COVID infected patients. But um, we that was one of our first papers that we published was comparing the asymptomatic positive rate of um, patients coming in for labor compared to every other unit um, kind of accepting patients. And we by far had the highest rate of asymptomatic patients. And that was kind of our siren call um, to other labor and delivery units. You know, people don't think of obstetrics as essential care. People don't think that this is like a frontline population or the workers are the providers on an obstetric unit or frontline. But in fact, we are seeing some of the highest rates. And so that was kind of our siren call to say, no, like if, if you're in an area where there's a lot of transmission of COVID, um, you need to think about your labor and delivery unit. That is a hot, red hot ticket to potential widespread infection. And were those um, rates higher than the community? So do, was it... Um did it seem that almost as if the pregnant uh, women that were coming into the hospital were disproportionately affected or infected by COVID? It did seem that way. Now I will, I will, the caveat to that though, is that this was in the beginning, right? Where like tests took 48 hours to come back, not every, you know, sold an arm and a leg to get yourself COVID tested. Not everybody was being tested unless you had to have like very specific symptoms. And so we were 
testing everybody, whether they had symptoms or not, when they first came on to labor and delivery. Our rates were higher, but we were picking up those asymptomatic infections. Um, I would say, you know, in the community, only the really sick ones were being tested. So it's hard to know rate comparison to the community, um, what our rates were, but we certainly were higher for whatever reason and compared to, you know, people being admitted from the emergency room, people going in for surgery, things like that. Um, and then the other thing that we started noticing kind of anecdotally was that, uh, you know, we had a huge number of asymptomatic patients, but conversely, if we had a symptomatic patient who was pregnant with COVID, they went downhill really fast. And we had some really, really sick patients um, in the ICU who were pregnant with COVID, you know, double pneumonias, intubated, um, multiple who had to go on ECMO, which is a bypass machine um, because they had complete respiratory failure. And in the beginning, there wasn't really that signal um, that pregnancy increased your risk for severe disease. In fact, the CDC published um, kind of this, you know, that uh, the mortality review where they said, actually, no, pregnancy doesn't seem to increase uh, your risk of severe disease. But that was really, um, you know, a flawed report, the best they could do at that time, but had a lot of missing data and very directly opposite of what we were seeing in a clinical way. And so that was another big project that we did where we um, looked at all of our patients across the board in the, at Barnes-Jewish Hospital who were symptomatic with COVID. And we saw that pregnancy did in fact increase your risk of severe disease by standardized criteria. Um, and that came out and then a lot of other information came out as well um, to say, actually, yes, the signal is there that pregnancy does increase that risk. Right. So that, I guess, brings us to sort of how to prevent that, which is vaccination and some of your current work. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think it's. Uh, you know, the vaccine came out, we were all super excited, you know, everyone's rolling up their sleeve as fast as possible. And of course, pregnant and lactating people were excluded uh, from the trial. And this is not new, this is not exclusive, this is pretty routine for clinical trials, for better or for worse. Um, we're actually thinking that's actually for worse at this point because we have no data to counsel our patients. And now we have this information in front of us that says COVID makes you sicker. You are more likely to end up on a ventilator. You are more likely to need bypass. You're more likely to die if you have COVID while you're pregnant. Um, we have this vaccine that prevents 95% of infection, but we don't know what it does in pregnancy. And you know, I think there was a lot of advocacy um, from uh, maternal fetal medicine specialists and obstetricians across the country when the FDA was trying to approve uh, the Pfizer, when it, you know, Pfizer vaccine when it first came out in December to say, please don't exclude pregnant women from getting uh, this vaccine. You know, in the UK and other countries, I think it was the UK that had initially approved um, the vaccination, they had said, we do not recommend this to be given during pregnancy. And we were really scared um, that we would not be able to offer this vaccine to our patients um, just because there was no data, even though there was overwhelming data at that point that 
you know, moms were more likely to die. Um, and there was no reason to think that this vaccine would be less effective in preventing that from happening. And so the FDA, to their credit, um, listened and put out a very um, clear statement that said this should not be, you know, pregnancy and lactation should not deter someone, uh, you know, from getting the vaccine. It should, it should not be withheld um, from them. And it's disheartening, right, to see um, scientists work so hard to develop this, like, phenomenally effective vaccine in a year, less than a year, um, which is unheard of, uh, and, you know, work so hard to get pregnant women included in the FDA emergency approval, and then see all of the social media, internet, um, just horrible misinformation that, you know, we, we, we all are kind of vaguely aware of kind of the anti-vaccine movement um, with, you know, the false uh, association with autism and et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're all kind of vaguely aware, but that really reared its head, um, especially for pregnant patients and lactating patients uh, after that came out to see, you know, COVID put our patients in the ICU and then have the solution, but have all this misinformation harm them further. Yeah. And that is when uh, many of us thought, you know, we have to have proof of concept that uh, we don't expect this vaccine to cause harm in pregnancy or breastfeeding. Um, and looking at all of the vaccine data from prior studies with like flu and whooping cough and HIV and all of those other um, um, diseases, they actually should provide protection either for the fetus or the, or the neonate. And we were like, okay, we gotta put together something to show this proof of concept. We have to show the science. We gotta get this out. It, like some small trial that puts the information out there as fast as possible to alleviate people's worries and show them, yes, there is a, a benefit. And so that was our breastfeeding study that we just published. Um, where we, uh, you know, this was during the initial rollout of Pfizer um, for in the 1A sort of tier of vaccine rollout in December. Um, so that was all essentially healthcare workers. Uh, so we recruited um, a handful of lactating moms uh, who were getting the vaccine and said, hey, we just need some breast milk. <laughs> we need, we need to like, we need to show uh, that there is antibody response in the breast milk from the vaccine, um, which, you know, essentially suggests that you are protecting your babies if you get this while you're, while, while you're lactating. And there was extreme interest, actually. Um, this was like a totally unfunded side project study that we were doing like after our days of clinic. Uh, and so we actually had to like stop because we got too many samples and too many and too much interest um, to run it efficiently from a, a completely unfunded sort of design. Um, we had a, we had a little bit of funding from like the, the, the hospital to kind of get the infrastructure of getting the breast milk and collecting them. But a lot of the downstream running the ELISA's running the RT-PCRs um, that was all, you know, from the good lab, that was all their, um, all their uh, money. So we, we got our patients and we saw it, right. You know, we collected it uh, and it was a balance of like, 
Do we wait more time to get more data and more time um, to show that this lasts for longer than three months? Or do we just publish this now and say like, look, it's here, it stays around for months. Um, and we really felt like in the climate of vaccine misinformation and the fact that it was, you know, the vaccine was gonna become widely available uh, to everybody that it was important to get it out ASAP. Um, and that's what we did. And, and our study essentially shows persistent high levels of both that IgA and IgG antibody against the COVID-19 virus um, throughout the entire course of the study, which was um, almost three months long. So it probably lasts even longer. And we have some plans to continue the, the work to show how long it lasts. Um, but we wanted to get that information out as fast as we could. Interesting, very cool. Um, so I had also seen articles recently talking about how COVID has impacted uh, pregnancy and uh, uh, fetuses and sort of like delivery aside from being infected, um, aside from infection itself. Can you comment on that? Because you clearly would have been seeing that as well. Yeah, um, I think the infection precautions and prevention um, sort of strategies and protocols have really changed childbirth. You know, we um, at the height of the pandemic went down to one visitor only. Usually it's an unlimited number of visitors. We went down to one only. Um, in New York City, they actually banned visitors completely um, from childbirth. And I'm, I'm a mom of three. I've given birth three times. And uh, I mean, sometimes I didn't want my husband there during the delivery, but I can't imagine not being able to have him there for that experience and not seeing our kids. Um, my sister-in-law is actually living in Japan and she just had a baby where um, he, her husband was not allowed uh, for the delivery and she gave birth completely alone by herself and they keep patients there for about a week. So he didn't really get to see her or the baby for a really long time. We hear um, that certainly came up uh, you know, as an option, like, should we be doing what New York City is doing? Should we be banning all the visitors? Is this just like a COVID sort of like cornucopia <laughs> that, that's happening on labor? And um, I will say that uh, myself and the hospital leadership really came together and said, you know, that doesn't seem humane. Um, Yes, we probably have better infection prevention if we like just put everybody in a bubble and just never touched anybody and uh, there was no human contact whatsoever. Um, but that's also unsafe. And um, the birth experience without any support people um, also seems uh, inhumane. And so we felt strongly that we wanted to at least keep one um, visitor. The other huge change that happened, this was again, right in the beginning where we didn't even know how COVID was spread. Babies were separated from moms who were COVID positive. And that was kind of the recommendation from all of the professional societies in the very beginning, because we, again, had no idea. And we realized very quickly, like within a week or two, that this was the wrong policy for us here. Um, and I think, it just didn't it like theoretically you're like, oh yeah, we need to protect the baby, right? Like don't, don't separate the mom, like don't let the baby get COVID. 
But logistically, what that meant was mom has COVID. Most of them had a mild course or no symptoms. They got separated from their baby. We gave them their baby two days later while they were going home that they had never met and had never been taught how to take care of. And we're like, goodbye, good luck congratulations. And by the way, you have COVID, so don't give it to your baby, wear a mask. It just didn't make sense. Um, And it also seemed like an an inhumane and also downright dangerous um, sort of practice and recommendation, because we do think part of our job as a maternity unit is to teach moms how to take care of their babies. And so even though it was really not, it was against recommendations at that time, we stopped that practice. And We gave moms the option, you know, like if you want us to separate the baby because you're worried, we'd be happy to do that. No moms chose that. Uh, And we essentially, you know, PPE'd mom up and taught her how to breastfeed with a mask and gloves and taught her how to um, bathe their babies with a mask and a glove um, and uh, really have had zero instances of problems with that. And quickly the data also caught up to say, actually, please stop separating moms from babies. It's not saving anybody anything and causing lots of stress on both moms and babies. So I think at this point in the pandemic, we've kind of gone full circle. I will say we've gone through, I don't know, 50 iterations of protocols around childbirth, all, um, you know, trying to best balance evidence-based practices to prevent infection, but also humane and, and, you know, preserving the joy of childbirth for our patients and and their families as much as possible. But we've like kind of come full circle. And now, you know, we're essentially back to normal, I would say on labor and delivery, we're up to two visitors. Um, Doulas are welcomed to, to be a part of the medical team. Babies are not separated. Um, unless one or both get really, really sick. Um, And, uh, you know, no one's leaving Parkview Tower as a pregnant woman, even if they have COVID, unless they have to go to the ICU. Uh, We've learned, we've learned so much uh, about this little virus and how it works in the last year, um, that I think we've arrived at a protocol that is a good balance between keeping moms and babies and families safe, um, but also bringing the de- labor and delivery experience back to where it should be, which is a joyful <laughs> celebration. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, I, I, I don't think I, I was going to ask you what's been the most difficult thing you've had to overcome as a doctor, but I think we've just heard it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess maybe to follow up on that. So personally, obviously you had to take on this role as sort of a director role in a year that um, has been uh, unprecedented, as they say. How did it affect you personally? So how did you manage that sort of all that stress, all that was going on and still sort of uh, maintain sort of yourself as an individual? How did you deal with that? That is a great question. I mean, I think I ask myself that still every day. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know the answer to it. I mean, we're still kind of in the thick of it, you know. Uh, I think healthcare workers, and especially ones who have been kind of frontline and making these big decisions, um, these are this year will ha- will resonate for for years to come for all of us. I mean, I know it. I I, I know that there are you know um, uh, things that have happened with our patients. Um, 
you know, hard decisions that I've had to make where the emotional fallout of that, I haven't even started to process, you know, um, I luckily have an incredibly supportive husband. We have three young, young children with no family here in St. Louis. So um, things have been really hard at home with childcare as well. Um, but I, I've been lucky to have immense support from a clinical husband who understands um, the stress and the necessity of what we've had to do. Um, I've had amazing colleagues who have jumped in and helped and um, also understand some of these tough decisions and has helped me kind of work through like, here's three terrible choices. Which one is the least terrible choice that we can make? Um, you know, I try to not take any work home. Um, that's been a pretty, I made that rule at some point through the pandemic when I realized I did never stopped working. Um, you know, I come home, I do the mom stuff and then I pull out my computer again after the kids went home. Um, and I made the conscious decision at some point to say like, I'm gonna, I have to stop doing this. I have to be more present for my kids. So um, I think family time has been helpful. We do a lot of gardening, <laughs> which has been great for the kids and kind of my own therapy as well. Um, but I think, you know, I think many of us in healthcare are going to be dealing with the fallout of this year. At this point, many of us are kind of just like, how do, what are the check marks, check boxes <laughs> that I have to get through um, to survive the, the next day and, and the next day and the next day. And so I think we're, I mean, knock on wood, we know those cases are going back up. I think we're in the last quarter, let's say, of the pandemic. Um, and uh, I think what we've done here at Barnes and at WashU um, in the maternity ward has been successful. Um, we have not had any rampant transmission. We have provided excellent care. We have learned a ton about COVID and I think contributed um, to the scientific knowledge of the virus during pregnancy in a meaningful way. So I will consider all of that a huge win um, for us so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess um, early on in the pandemic, um, you know, people were all concerned about, you know, safety. And obviously you would have had sort of like a big leg up on that and talking to family, friends, you know, colleagues. Now that we're moving into sort of more the vaccine era, how do you deal with talking about that? So it's like, I think, you know, at WashU, we've had, you know, fairly good uptake of the vaccine. I think we're at about 70% or so. But how do you sort of talk to friends, family, colleagues who might still have some um, hesitancy or fear about the vaccine or, or issues with it? I think it's important to listen to that hesitancy. There's reason behind it. Um, and some of that reason could be good. You know, lots of, uh, lots of family and friends in the beginning where we had no data on pregnancy came to me and asked me like, what should I do? I don't know what to do. Um, and, you know, I don't have the answer for any one particular person, but I can help them work through what, their, what is important to them, what their own risk profile is, and kind of their own um, risk aversion of whether that's to getting COVID or getting the vaccine with all of its unknowns. Um, I do think as more and more and more people get vaccinated and we all realize, hey, like I'm not, 
you know, growing three heads after vaccination and, um, you know, the, the babies that are born to moms getting vaccinated aren't uh, coming out with birth defects or any other issues. In fact, we're finding antibodies in their cord blood and um, getting vaccinated may actually help you while you're breastfeeding and help your baby as well. I think more and more as more data comes out for the vast majority of reasonable people who believe in science, the uptake is only going to increase right. as we realize that this is safe and we see everyone around us getting vaccinated um, and, and, and thriving from it. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about your research and um, sort of the clinical side of this. Um, do you have any last messages for our listeners or any thoughts about sort of, you think we're in the last quarter? Where do you see that? Where do you see us going after that? Oh, it's really, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, I'm really hopeful that uh, by the fall, you know, we're, we're at the end of this pandemic. I'm hopeful that um, my kids start, my oldest starts first grade, that he can take off his mask um, when he goes to school and can see his teacher's faces. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic. Um, I, uh, you know, this, like I said, this has been a crazy, like you said, unprecedented year. Um, there's been awful things that have happened, but I also think there's been some incredible shows of research and human spirit and clinical care that has come out of this, uh, that is going to pave the way for um, a lot of people uh, moving forward. Great. Thanks a lot. Jeannie's work as the medical director of labor and delivery at Barnes-Jewish Hospital allowed her to contribute to clinical research addressing the amount of COVID infection in pregnant women, the high risk of COVID during pregnancy, and the benefit of vaccination for mothers as well as their babies, both in utero and after birth through breast milk. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcasts or at lmtv.podbean.com.